Our Father God, we come before you grateful for gathering us this morning. Um, our hearts are heavy over things of this last week, and um, it's, it's a treasure to be a part of a people who gather and embody Christ's love to one another. And we pray that would happen in all our gatherings today, and that we would together uh, look at Jesus and behold his glory and be reminded of his truth. And we thank you for this class and the opportunity to look really at how sufficiently and how wonderfully you provide for us and how you lead us by your providences in this life, even in times and ways that we struggle to be content. We struggle with hearts that are restless and unhappy with what you ordain for us. We know this happens in all sorts of ways and all sorts of occasions. And we thank you that this series has been helpful at addressing these sins and helping to bring the light of your word to bear on our hearts. We pray that that would continue today. Uh, don't, uh, we, we pray not just for uh, feeling guilty about being discontent, but that you would show us the better way, the more joyful and bountiful way of faith in Christ and uh, trusting your fatherly hand in our lives. Uh, we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we're back to continue our equipping our series on contentment. We've had a couple weeks off for Christmas and New Year. And before we get into this lesson, I want to give just a word about the course overall, where we're going. Uh, This is the fourth of ten lessons regarding Christian contentment. Uh, The first lesson, we introduced the topic and defined it. And then we spent a couple of lessons dealing with the mystery or paradox element of what is so strange about Christian contentment. It's so unlike what the world knows. And uh, this week we're going to teach, or we're going to look at how, how Christ teaches contentment. I'm getting, uh, getting a little too close to this plan here. Um, how Christ teaches contentment. So we'll look a little bit about what that entails. And then next week... We're going to look once more at the, at the excellence of contentment. That'll be week five. And then at that point, I will have had five weeks to play good cop with you all uh, by heralding the glories of contentment and how to learn it. And then for the final five weeks of the course, Jason Kenny's going to come in and play bad cop because uh, the, the last few weeks are pretty heavy on focusing on the sin of discontentment. And um, we didn't plan it this way because I like encouraging people and Jason likes rebuking and correcting. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he's happy to do it. <laughs> but it's really just a, more of a matter of keeping my schedule clear. You may know we have a baby due, um, my wife and I, uh, in early February. So this is actually Jason serving me by helping us to just stay clear of equipping our after next week. So Jason will be covering the back half of the course starting on the 22nd through uh, February 19th. So I'm thankful, Jason, coming in, doing some dirty work after I've uh, coddled everybody. I'm sure after going through this lesson, you will not f- feel that you've been coddled. Uh, but uh, you know, that this is a topic that hurts because it's very real in our lives, the need for the, the reality of discontentment. But I pray and trust that even up to this point, it's been kind of a redemptive hurt. It's the kind of pruning Jesus talks about in John 15, where uh, we're united to Christ, the vine, we get to be branches in the vine, we get to bear fruit for him. But part of what that means is the Father is going to do some pruning to make us fruitful. And sometimes that hurts, but the joy of being like Jesus is so much greater than, than the pain. And, and I trust and pray that's the case as we study this topic. So uh, let's look at uh, today's lesson, move into that. Uh, we, we started this whole thing with this key text in Philippians 4, um, really verses 11 through 13, where Paul is in prison in Philippi. I'm sorry, in Rome, writing to the Philippians. And he's writing about how he's learned, even though he's grateful for the gift they gave him, and it was truly helpful. But he says, I want you to know, uh, what I'm after isn't ultimately stuff from you or anyone, because the, the great thing about being in Christ is I've learned how to handle every circumstance. I've learned how to face plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Uh, he's learned how to rejoice and be satisfied in whatever God ordains for him. And the answer is in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But focusing in today on this, this idea of, of how he says in verse 12, he actually uses this terminology a couple of times. I have learned. I have learned the secret. And he says, I know, I know. And of course, this isn't merely an intellectual knowledge that he has learned certain propositions and facts and says, okay, I get it. Um, 
But this is a knowledge we uh, and Burroughs in this uh, this these chapters. He uses kind of the metaphor of being in school and learning a subject. And he says, you know, discipline is like, uh, um, contentment is like a discipline that we learn. And to learn a discipline, you often have a series of different lessons that go into learning that, that skill or discipline. It's not just that you have one lesson and then you get it. You have all these different components that have to come together. If you went to college or you're in college, you had a major. There was a certain topic that you spent your time on. But what do you have? A bunch of different courses. And, and even before college, whatever level of education you have, your reading courses and your writing courses and your math and science and all this. And it's all building toward your, your education. And so it is with contentment. Um, he, he uses throughout these chapters the metaphor of Christ as our schoolmaster. We're in the school of contentment, and Christ is teaching us a series of lessons. So um, that's what we're looking at today. What do we have to learn to learn contentment? What are the lessons that um, contentment consists of us learning? And as we see, we saw in the very beginning of the series that he calls it sort of the, the, the kind of the, the, the index, the greatest index of our spiritual uh, health. It's sort of the virtue that sums up all these other virtues because uh, to be content just assumes all these other things about how we see ourselves, how we see God, and how we uh, move through life. And we're going to sort of see that today. There's a whole lot that goes into being content and a whole lot of ways that it could go wrong if we're misunderstanding uh, or not, not growing in these, uh, these things. So before we, we're going to, uh, as you've grown to expect at this point, a long list and nine items <laughs> of uh, what do we have to learn to learn contentment. Um, are there any questions or, or thoughts about where we're headed before, before we get into those or anything I've said? All right, um, I've given you little to interact with, so that makes sense. Let's uh, go ahead and start. The first one is learning contentment requires the lesson of self-denial. The lesson of self-denial. Would someone uh, look up Mark 8.34 and be willing to read that? Yeah, Matt, thanks. And as Matt looks that up, Burroughs tells us, just as no one can be a scholar unless he learns his ABCs, so you must learn the lesson of self-denial or you can never become a scholar in Christ's school and be learned, that means be taught, in the mystery of contentment. So Matt, would you read this, uh, Mark 8.34? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mm -hmm. So this is Jesus calling to potential disciples and saying, what it means to follow me is that you say no to yourself and you come to me um, and and trust and follow me. And uh, Burroughs... You know, he, he's, he's speaking about this idea of how hard or soft our hearts are. Are our hearts soft and yielding in self-denial? Or are they hardened in kind of self-assertion, like wanting to protect our own rights and our own desires? And he says, when you, when you hit something hard, it makes a sound, right? You hit something hard. I hit with my ring, you know, you have the ring and you hit something, a wood. You hear a loud sound. But if you hit something soft, it's quieter. Um, and... He said, so is with our hearts. When affliction comes and you have a hard heart, smack, and it, it booms, it resonates, and it makes a sound. And that's, you know, we, we even have this metaphor of the quietness of our hearts. And we were learning the definition of contentment. That uh, part of what it means to be content is a, it's a disposition of quietness in our hearts before the Lord. When something hits a soft heart, it's quiet. Um, like when something hits a pillow, it's quiet. And he says, this is kind of a measure of how self-denying, whether we've really given ourselves over to Christ. And, uh, and even this idea of self-denial, he breaks it down into a few different components. What does it mean to have self-denial? And I'm going to warn you that your self-esteem is about to take a hit as we move through these. Um, and I do think some of these claims need a little bit of qualification and, and careful definition, because I think we could misunderstand these, uh, these, these propositions that he kind of lays out is what does it mean to, to deny ourselves? The first is I am nothing. Um, I am nothing. Now, this is really the most basic sense of what self-denial entails is no to me. We have this natural sin inclination to, uh, to, to overinflate our own worth and our own desires. Now, what this doesn't mean, to clarify, is that our value as human beings is nothing. Of course, we bear the image of God. We're, we're of infinite worth as human beings made in God's image. So, uh, it, it's not to say that we ultimately in every way are worth, are, are worth nothing. 
It's really, all these are kind of in comparison with God himself. Saying, relative to God, I am nothing. And that's a, a healthy biblical assertion to make. Um, God still loves us. God still in, imbues us with value because he made us in his image. But we ourselves, in ourselves, are nothing before God. Second, is very closely related, is I deserve nothing. And again, we, of course, in the human realm, we deserve certain things from fellow human beings. There are rights we have, like natural rights. Uh, but vertically, in relation to God, no one can stand before God and claim to deserve any good thing we're not getting. That's part of self-denial is to say, I don't have rights I can assert before God that he's violating, that he's withholding from me. If we were to do that, we might get the Job treatment. You know, when God shows up in Job, out of the whirlwind in Job 38.2 and introduces his long speech to rebuke Job and others who were speaking wrongly of him and being presumptuous. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You don't know what you're talking about and proceeds for a few chapters to show you don't know what you're talking about because there's this claim of, of what I deserve. I can do nothing. Uh, this one is really comes straight out of John 15. I already mentioned. Would someone read John 15 verse 5? Yeah, Jason, thank you. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So how would this verse that Jason just read lead us to qualify this statement, I can do nothing? What, what's sort of a, well, how do we, in what sense is that true or false? I'm part of the vine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... Outside of union with Christ, outside of fellowship with Christ, we are unable to produce anything good, right? It's sort of, apart from grace, we can do nothing. But in union with Christ and in his spirit giving us life, we can produce fruit. And that is his, his gift and his intention for us. But uh, Burroughs, again, I think he's looking at how we in our pride want to assert ourselves. And we tend to think, I'm very valuable, I'm very, I can be very fruitful, I can do great things. And he's saying, you and yourself can't. He says, consider of what use you are in the world. And if you consider what little need God has of you, uh, you will not be much discontented. And that's true. God doesn't need us, right? He gives us the gift of uh, uniting us to the vine so that we can have the, the joy and benefit of bearing fruit. But it's not like God is depending on us going, I need someone to come in and fill this gap. And <laughs> we come in to be a hero and, and do something for God, help God out. No, we, uh, all that we can do for God is a gift from God. So that's very, um, very helpful for a self-denial. And uh, finally, if I perish, it will be no loss. Now, that's, that's a difficult one. And again, I would say, and I would say, Burroughs, let's qualify this. He doesn't make these qualifications that I am. It, uh, relative to one another, yes. You know, we are very deeply valuable to one another. And... Um, and yes, I mean, we know this week, obviously the loss of a dear loved one, and, and it, it does impact us deeply. So it is a loss for others. But again, this is with regard to God's use. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. God, his plans march on. He is fully sufficient in himself. So there's just a real humbling um, effect of all these things and going, wow, this is all what leads to self-denial and going, I'm really nothing before God. Everything I have is a gift from God. I, I, don't, I don't help God out by giving him things that he needs or doesn't have. Um, if we really understood ourselves in this self-denying way, this is, I am nothing, I deserve nothing, I can do nothing, God doesn't depend on me. And contentment would be pretty easy, wouldn't it be? If we really internalize these truths about ourselves, it would be pretty intuitive and easy to be content with what God ordains for us, even very hard things. Uh, Burroughs sums it up and says, A man who is little in his own eyes will account every affliction as little, and every mercy as great. Uh, there's that sense of, if you think this way about yourself, and God gives you a good thing, a mercy, you go, wow, me? That you would give that mercy to me? And then when God gives an affliction, ordains an affliction, we would go, oh, well, what do, I, <laughs> do I deserve any better? Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a crucial lesson for learning contentment. Any thoughts about, about self-denial or those components that we, that we saw from Burroughs? Yeah, Jason. I, I'm sure it'll be here. But I, mean, I think one, one, thing we can, one mistake we can make with self-denial is 
focusing on it without also magnifying grace? Yes, like, yes. I'm diminishing, but if I'm not also exalting how much God is good and gracious to me, all I'm doing is really kind of depressing myself. Yeah. There's no, there's no net benefit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, if, if we, we can, we can, in the kind of the whole balance of how we, what we're thinking about in the Christian life, uh, there's only so much mental bandwidth we have. And if, if all we do is, at, like attack the you know self and self denial, and we're not correspondingly. And when Jesus calls for self denial, he's calling people to follow him and see him as the treasure and the all sufficient one, and to experience his grace. So yeah, absolutely. We always would want to pair self denial with look at Christ, look at his grace, look at his promises and his fullness for you. Um, so yes, very very good point. Yeah, Matt. <clears throat> It might be dovetailing him a little bit, uh, Jason, a little bit, but how do you like? How do you have the right perspective of not denying yourself, but also not just stepping out of the game? Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, I'm not needed. So yeah, yeah. Like it could become an excuse for passivity, and and yeah, exactly. Well, what what do you, you matter? Anyone else have any thoughts on how does how does embracing self denial not lead to passivity and uh, you know, spiritual laziness and things like that. Yeah, uh, Matt Wolf. Well, the Mark passage said, follow me. Right? Yeah. We're, we're, we're still called to follow Christ and his commands and mm-hmm. do so with humility rather than expectation of reward. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it kind of to Jason's point you said, Dutchels, follow Christ, and there's going to be plenty to do in, in him. Yeah. Thinking of the John 15 metaphor, you know, he's, he doesn't say, you are. You're, I'm a vine, and you're not in this picture. You're a cut-off branch on the ground. So, you know, <laughs> tough to, you know, sorry, tough beans. He says, he, I mean, he actually says, we have a very privileged position. We are connected to the vine. And we are given this opportunity to be fruitful, but it's just beware that you put it in its order. You only are fruitful from me. And the, but the, the joy is that your position as a Christian is you are united to me, and you get to therefore bear fruit. It becomes less something that we help God and give God what he needs and more, again, a gift we get from God that we get to bear fruit. And even coming to Christ helps reorient our desires so that that becomes, wow, this, this is what I want. The, the, you know, this is the new covenant heart that has the law written on it and all this. Yeah. Good. Yeah, Gary Eastman. I think with that question, uh, where I think of Ephesians 2.10, we've been created for good works. Mm-hmm. So we are... It's our obligation to find out what those works are. We yeah. can't be passive if we're going to be real Bible-believing Christians. Yeah, created for good works. Yeah, being branches in the vine, we're created to bear fruit. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Just quickly, it's you know we're boasting in the Lord, not anything else. Mm-hmm. We're puffed up of ourselves in the world. We're created for His purposes. Yeah. Kingdom work. Yeah. Here and for there. Yeah, created for his purpose, not our own. That's good too. Like we're going to have a purpose. And even someone who's being spiritually passive or whatever, like they're living for a purpose. <laughs> uh, so you just have to sort of ask yourself, whose will it be? And self-denial actually would lead us to a very zealous desire for his and not our purposes. That's a good point. So good. I appreciate that. Good question and good interaction. Let's move on and look at the second, the second uh, lesson. Learning contentment requires learning the vanity of the creature. Uh, would someone be willing to read Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2? If you've read Ecclesiastes, you know what this, this word vanity uh, is striking, a, striking a, a, a bell in your... Ringing a bell, that's the word, in your memory. Vanity is a big concept in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, Wilson. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Thank you. Now, we might... We might tend to read vanity wrong here. All throughout Ecclesiastes, it's a common, it's a key theme. All throughout Ecclesiastes, under the sun, meaning everything in sort of the created uh, earthly realm, aside from God, just viewing earth itself, is vanity. And we, we read that and we might think it means without purpose. It is completely empty of purpose. It's meaningless. Actually, a better idea of this vanity, it has more to do with being temporary. Being something like a vapor or a mist or a breath. You, you, you hear James saying this. We're a mere vapor. When he's, he's warning us against making all these firm plans about what we will do in the future. He says, your life is a vapor. That's the idea of Ecclesiastes saying everything is vanity. All created things, everything under the sun is a fading mist. 
And this means that, as Burroughs draws out, creaturely goods are ill-equipped to satisfy our immortal souls. So to learn to be content, we have to see this. He says, there is nothing in the creature that is anything created. There's nothing in the creature that is suitable for a gracious heart to feed upon for its good and happiness. And he observes, like, sometimes we go through life, we, we enjoy created goods. We enjoy things, and we, that's good. We enjoy created goods, and then we come away feeling empty. And then we reason, I must need more of those created things, don't we? And uh, he says, no, 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 that's the wrong lesson to draw from this. If we enjoy created things or we use them and then come away feeling empty and go back for more, he says, maybe instead we should be drawing from that the lesson that these things, he says, they are not proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. You were made for God. You're made in his image. You're made to commune with him. And when you try to satisfy your soul on created things, you will be unsatisfied. So... Don't be, you know, you have this terminology in Jeremiah 2, 13 about people, idolatry as going to a leaky cistern that can't hold water instead of God as the springs of living water, etc. Uh, there's this wonderful verse, actually, he cites in Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So you're giving up all your resources, your money and your work for stuff, created things, um, maybe idols, uh, just whatever is, is not God, less than God. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Um, that idea of being um, in fellowship with our creator, the God of heaven and earth, is what we were actually made for and is meant to delight us. So um, you won't learn contentment if you keep looking to created things to fulfill a role that only God can. Any thoughts or, or questions on that? Okay, let's look at the third lesson. Learning contentment requires learning what is the one thing necessary. When you hear the what, there is one thing necessary, what Bible account do you think of? No, it's not the rich young ruler. One thing you lack. So it's very close. Yes, yes, yeah, that's good. I didn't think of that. Yes, one thing you lack. But there's one thing, there's one thing necessary. That's pretty similar. It's uh, the interaction with Mary and Martha. Jesus is in the house with Mary and Martha. And, and Martha is busily serving Jesus. And Mary is sitting at his feet listening to him teach. Which is okay. But then Martha starts getting mad at resentful Mary. Because she's not pulling her weight. And Jesus' response is to rebuke Martha and saying, She has got it right. She's prioritizing. One thing is necessary. Luke 10.42 She has chosen the better part. Meaning it's much... It, the essential thing is listening to Jesus. Sitting at his feet. Learning from him. And being devoted in heart to him. All the activity is secondary. I think that's kind of the takeaway here. All the activity is secondary. And so Burroughs goes on. And he extends it beyond just this, you know, the, 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 the hyperactive Martha trying to, trying to serve. He says, there's all these things that aren't necessary that may feel necessary to us. He says, it, it, like, it's not to be rich. Being rich is not necessary. Having a lot of things in this life is not necessary. Making my peace with God, that's necessary. <laughs> that's a must. It's not living a pleasurable life in this world. It's to have pardon from sin. It's not to have honor and privileges, but to have God as my portion through Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's just a matter of remember that. It's, this is in a lot of ways just a restating of the prior point. The, the things that are temporary are passing away. They are not necessary. We could have all them stripped away. And we could have the one thing. What is the one thing? Fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Our sins forgiven. Uh, or in terms of the last point. Having our souls uh, united to the Creator for whom they were, they were fitted for, that's the one thing necessary. So to learn contentment, we will have to learn that. We'll have to learn there's only one thing I really need. Often God is using afflictions and trials to get us to see that, to get us to believe that. There's only one thing I really need. Uh, I love this illustration he uses, the Roman general Pompey, who, who was, or Pompey, I don't know how to pronounce his name, he was with his army, and they were trying to deliver a, a shipment of grain to Rome during a time of scarcity, and it was a perilous journey. And Pompey says this to his soldiers, We must go on. It is necessary that Rome should be relieved, but it is not necessary that we should live. And I'm like, wow. That's a good, it's like they need this style, like whether, whether we live or not, okay, but they need the grain. We've got to keep moving. That's the idea of what's the one thing that's really necessary. 
And, uh, and as you probably hear that, it's very hand-in-hand hand with self-denial. The, the one thing necessary is not me and my preferences and my wealth and my temporal well-being. It's something outside of us. It's Christ and his purposes. So, um, learning the one thing necessary. Uh, the fourth lesson we must learn to, to learn contentment. Requi- uh, learning contentment requires understanding our relationship with the world. Would someone read First uh, Peter 2.11? I think we read this one before in this series, but yeah, Matt Boy, thanks. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay, what are what are some identities that Peter ascribes to Christians there in that in that one verse? Sojourners, sojourners and exiles very explicitly, right? Which is true. I would also say, think about this, to, to say that passions are waging war against your soul. Is there maybe implicitly another identity that's, that's being communicated there? Soldier, right? If you are being waged war against, you're a soldier, right? Uh Especially if the implication is you in abstaining from these passions that are warring against your soul, you are waging war against those passions. So you're a sojourner, you're an exile, you're a soldier, you're a fighter. Uh, not a fighter against flesh and blood to draw in Ephesians 6. It's not other people that's our enemy. It's sin. It's, it's the, the, the working of the flesh drawing us towards sin. And of course, Satan is behind that. Satan and his demons are a part of that. That's part of our warfare. Now, why does God want us Christians to think of ourselves as sojourners and exiles? Like, what is the value in our lives of thinking, I am a sojourner? What is it? A sojourner is someone who's moving through, a traveler. Uh, an exile is someone who's been kicked out of, or for whatever reason, has been expelled from their homeland. They're not home. So I'm, I'm a traveler. I'm not at my home. And then also this idea of I'm a soldier at war. What, what's the value in our Christian lives of God using these pictures for us. Why does he want us to think of ourselves this way? Because this is not our home. This is not our home. Yeah. Very good, Didi. Now let me ask you this, Didi. Um, how might that help us in our contentment to realize that? That this is not our home. When things aren't going that well here, we know we're just passing through. Mm-hmm. There's a much better home awaits us. Right. Exactly. So it puts into perspective, even though the losses and the, the, the trials and challenges that we face are very real, it, it removes a sense of ultimacy from this life. And it, it casts our eyes on, well, this is really a temporary situation. It's not just your sojourners and then you die and then you're annihilated, right? Your sojourners who are moving toward a, to use a terminology of like Hebrews 11, a city which has foundations, a city that's to come whose architect and builder is God, a lasting country. So we're headed toward a permanent home in which all these things won't happen, these afflictions and these losses. I mean, that's massively helpful for our contentment. There's so much spiritual power and, and, uh, and wisdom to draw from these metaphors the Bible gives us. And, uh, he, and he, he challenges us to consider when we're traveling. I just think about when you're, I'm going to use a little bit updated terminology here. When we're traveling, we, um, our standards of comfort are pretty different than when we're at home. And we don't even really think about it. That we think about, like, you bring a, a limited set of clothes and then you just live with that. You know, like, you, it's kind of constricting, right? You're like, well, I just have these two pairs of pants and whatever. And you just, but you just deal with it. You just live with it. You wear things maybe a little more frequently than you would at home when you have laundry. You could just, all your clothes are there. Food, you're not eating the same stuff you normally eat. It's usually not quite as nice. Uh, accommodations, you're sleeping in a bed that's not yours. It's usually not, it's not as comfortable and set up for you. You probably not get the same quality of sleep. You know, be getting in, like exercise. There's a lot of things that aren't optimal when you're traveling. And we have, relative even to Burroughs Day, we have pretty comfortable, you know, travel accommodations. But even still, we just expect it. We don't go like, I mean, if you're on the road for a long time, you may be like, man, this stinks. I can't wait to get home. But we just kind of put up with that stuff. It's normal. It's inconvenient and it's not as pleasant. But we, what are we thinking? Well, of course, I'm, I'm traveling. I'm not home. I, why should I expect to have all my clothes here on the road or have my bed, like bring my bed with me, you know, on the road? Like it's not going to be the, the stuff that I'm most comfortable in, but that's okay. It really sets our expectations 
And it helps us to be content with less because we know we're not home. And that is a really powerful point. When I get home, it'll all be better. When I get home, I'll get my own bed. I'll get to resume my sleep schedule, eat better, all this stuff that we go back to our normal patterns. And again, this doesn't make hardship easy, but it does put it in perspective. It equips us in terms of our expectations. This is going to be a hard life. We are not at home. We very, very often forget this. And uh, again, this is something God will, God will teach us. He will be teaching us this as he teaches us contentment. Um, so yeah, any, any thoughts or follow-up on that, on that point? No questions? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, I'm just kind of dovetailing on what you just mm-hmm. said, but it just, there's less predictability when you're a sojourner like that. And yeah. It makes you put your trust in God more because mm-hmm. you don't have the creature comforts or yeah. things that you accumulate when you're in one place. Yeah, absolutely. There's much of more of a sense of unsettledness and uncertainty about the future. Um, being a, an exile, I think of like a refugee who's like, we just got to get out of here. We just got to grab what we can grab and go. Like, what a life, right? You don't, you don't know, where am I going to be in six months? You know, like, you know, where am I going to be in a week? You know, there can be a real sense of unsettledness. And that, that can be valuable part of the picture too of not not or just the idea of dependence on the lord and going i don't know what the future holds i'm not settled in and i i think home the settledness of home is a wonderful metaphor for heaven of course heaven being so much better than that and the, and the new creation but this sense of permanence and establishment i know i'm not going anywhere all that but we're not there yet so that's a, a really good point jeff that there's not only in terms of what we have around us but what kinds of things might happen to us Uncertainty and a need for dependence on the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Um, let's look at our fifth point. Fifth, learning contentment requires knowing where we are to find any good in created things. Where where do we find good in created things? Now, it's important to say um, there is good to be found in created things, like the the. Christian theology, the Bible, definitely affirms the goodness of creation. We've looked earlier in the series at uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 to 5. Would someone be willing to read that text? And someone else be ready with Psalm 16, verse 2. So Psalm 16, 2 and 1 Timothy 4, 4 to 5. Any volunteers? Uh, all right, I got Matt. Wolf, would you get First uh, Timothy 4? And Wilson, would you get uh, Psalm 16? First Timothy 4, 4 through 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's good. So everything created is good. It's not to be rejected. But there's this sense of kind of drawing God into it and, and recognizing God in it. Not, not I shouldn't say drawing him into it because he's there. He's the one providing it. There's a sense of recognizing its connection to God is what sanctifies our enjoyment of good things. Um, which I think maybe a, a more distilled way of making the same point would be what Psalm 16.2 says. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. So a a Christian approach to created things is this is good. God, you made this good thing and I can enjoy it, but I have no good in my enjoyment of your created things apart from you. That it actually becomes a means of enjoying God. Um, And if we ever completely, and now we're not always as consciously thinking of God, but if we ever completely detach the enjoyment of the gift from the giver, that's what leads to idolatry. Um, And so Bros says in order to learn contentment, we have to realize that our enjoyment of good things is, it's only the, the real goodness of the good things is that we are enjoying God in it as the giver. Um, he says, if there is any good or wealth or, uh, is, if there's any good in wealth or in comfort in this world, it is not so much that it pleases my senses or that it suits my body, but that it has reference to God, the first being. That by these creatures, somewhat of God's goodness might be conveyed to me. And I may have a sanctified use of the creature to draw me nearer to God. A sanctified use of the creature. I, I, I think that's an echo of that first Timothy point of it's made holy. That's what sanctified means. By, by the word of God and prayer. By our knowledge of God and by our communion with him. 
it makes holy the ordinary things that he gives us. We can see his goodness expressed to us in his gifts. And uh, that makes a big difference. How would that make a difference in terms of if we have a good gift that then we lose? How we can still be content when we've lost a good, a good created thing God gave us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't hurt so much when we lose it. We know where it came from. We know the God who made it good for us is still ours and is still conveying his goodness to us in other ways. So um, we can say the real, the real sweetness of this gift, even the gift itself has been lost, but the sweetness of it is still to be found somewhere in God's, uh, in God's goodness to me through creation and through the fellowship that we have in Christ. Um, and I, I, I think that's what you see in Paul in Philippians 4 saying, I can do with much, I can do with little. I have Christ. I have Christ who strengthens me in all of that. Matt, were you? Yeah. I mean, you've kind of said it, but uh, no good thing is he withhold from us. Yeah. Which means he withholds things from us that are not good for us. Yes, yes. Yes, and that's anticipating. And all these points so kind of interweave and layer, but that's also anticipating some things we're about to see. But yeah, if he withholds no good thing from those who fear him, that's Psalm 34, that means that the things he's withholding are not ultimately good. Um, And so that's a good way to reason backward from the losses. Even if temporally they are very good and there's real value in having them and real loss in not having them, but we can look at the most ultimate sense and say, he's not withholding things that are finally good for me, ultimately. Yeah. The, uh, the sixth lesson is that learning contentment requires learning our own hearts. Learning our own hearts. You will never get any skill in the mystery of contentment except you study the book of your own hearts. Um, now, he's going to offer some ways that this helps, but I want to ask you, kick it out to you all. What are some ways that knowing our own hearts is going to be necessary and helpful for learning contentment? Any ideas? Know what your idols are. Mm-hmm. And knowing that those idols are getting in the way of you and God, realizing that they're not good for you. Yes. Very, very true. That's going to be one of the points he makes is that in a little bit different terms, but if you know where the idols are, where the sin struggles are, where the, 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 the spiritual weaknesses are, and then you see God doing something that pushes that button, it's going to, it's going to help us to go, hmm, I see, yeah, as, as I hurt and as I may struggle with resentment, I see the wisdom, God, in you going after that because I see how that was tri- that's tripping me up, that's tempting me. Um, very good. That's good. We'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, Matt. Well, uh, I think uh, a healthy suspicion of our own desires and hearts should attend any sort of expression of anger. Mm-hmm. Why are we angry over the situation that we're facing right now? Mm-hmm. There may be a righteous anger, which is often rare. Mm-hmm. It can, we may not be able to specifically identify an idol at yeah. the moment, but it should raise suspicion in our, in our own thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes we have this response of anger and we're not very reflective or conscious of why. Why am I responding so strongly to this thing? And there's some really good searching, prayerful searching of pulling the thread, tracing it back and going, what did I... And we kind of, you know, a little while ago I preached from Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 about, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And we, you know, this idea of asking, what do I really want you know, why am I anxious? Why am I uh, worrying? And, or why am I angry? These are all responses that ultimately something we want is threatened or taken away. And sometimes we don't even, we're not very conscious of how these things are working in our hearts. Um, so, yeah, that's good. I mean, that really, to, to dovetail into his points, that anticipates his first point, which is it helps us to discover where our discontentment lies. So it just helps us to pinpoint, like, what is, what is it that I'm really upset about? Which is not always the surface issue. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like an anger. Something kind of small happens and it like sets you off. And you're like, it even surprises you. You're like, why am I reacting to this like this? It's really not that big a deal. But what's happening is there's other, whatever, fears, insecurities, anxieties. 
about other things, and this maybe is touching on that, and it's suddenly it's violated, and and you're like, no, <laughs> I cannot, that's not okay, God. And what's happening is there's bigger, deeper issues in our own hearts. So when we're aware of our hearts, and again, I, I, I dealt with this back in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, we feel agitated over one thing, but there's some deeper heart issue of fear and anxiety. It's interesting how there the author is dealing with greed, and he says, don't love money, you know, be content with what you have. And then he brings in, God will never leave you or forsake you, so what, uh, basically don't be afraid for the future. And he connects greed with anxiety about the future, which is very profound because when we're a greed could be another sort of like light going off. I'm so greedy to obtain things or keep what I have. Maybe I'm worried about a certain future thing that might happen to me and I'm trying to sort of hedge myself, protect myself from that. So just it, self-awareness, prayerful, thoughtful awareness of our souls will help us ferret these things out and start dealing with them as needed with repentance and truths of God's promises. Yeah, Matt? I think you said trace the thread. I think that thread will often, if not always, lead to some sort of issue between us and God. Mm -hmm. There's some level of discontentment with God himself. Yeah. Um, And I think we often, maybe, I had to do this in my own life where I had to, I often cut it short, the exploration of my own heart. Mm -hmm. Like I arrived at a point. Mm -hmm. But Tracing it further, further along, it, it almost always terminated on some issue between me and God. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna go pretty deep to how we view God, how we relate to God, somewhere in there. So again, we're, we're using this metaphor of school, right? God's got you in school for contentment. If He ordains an affliction or a loss, this is an opportunity to do what Matt said and to go, huh? I'm seeing how I'm reacting. God is exposing, you know, God has given me an exposure of something that's going on in my heart. Maybe there are things, and it wouldn't be wise to just go all in on, like, like self-inspection and, and, and just kind of morbidly searching for everything. But still, it's a, I think there's a place, honestly, and it's going to be very hard in our lives nowadays, very loud, noisy, busy lives. Quiet down and prayerfully ask those questions of what is going on? What am I upset about? What am I afraid of? And what, and yeah, like, is it something I'm not believing about God? Or is it something I'm resenting about God himself? What are the promises of scripture I'm not believing? Things like that. And uh, we could see these as an opportunity for God to expose these things that needed to be exposed. We're learning. We're in Christ's school of sanctification. The, uh, the second way that self-knowledge helps is it helps us to know what suits our condition. And this is Matt Boyd's point. Um, when you know what your sin, weaknesses, and struggles, and idolatries are, you see God dealing with them with his providence, and you go, hmm, I see that that's a wise thing for you to do, God, even if we're not always celebrating the fact that he's doing it. I once um, had a period in my old job where I, my prior job, I made some very big consequential mistakes, and I got, created some, <laughs> created some, some issues, some, got a little bit of trouble, and it was terrifying and miserable for me this period of time. Uh, I'd always been a really good student. I'd kind of been a teacher's pet. And uh, always, you know, in the work world, I'd always kind of, my employers all liked me. And I was really like, this was a bad season for me. But what it was really helpful was I could see the Lord was addressing and pruning away this. There's this man-fearing tendency. Like I really thrived on people thinking well of me in like a work environment. And I was like, that's not happening. And so I had to keep going to work and keep doing my job and going, maybe I'm going to mess up and get, you know, my boss is going to get mad at me again or whatever. But that was so necessary for God to start addressing that idol. So even though it doesn't make it all, none of this makes it easy, but it helps us to be content, right? It helps us to fight for contentment to go, "Mm, God, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that you're not letting this sin just stay there the way it is, but you're, you're faithfully pruning and, Disciplining so that I can bear the fruit of righteousness, which is joyful. Um, and then number three, it helps us to know what we're able to manage. This is very humbling. It cut against, cuts against the nature of, of our hearts. What sort of prosperity am I fit to handle? We might all just, without thinking, assume that we can handle any measure of prosperity, any and all prosperity God wants to give us. We would do well with it. So there are certain desires we have or expectations and we think, well, I'm sure I would do well with that. Things would be great. But prosperity can more, be more destructive to our souls than hardship. 
And there may be uh, things like money and power and the approval of others that we desire, but if we had them, they would corrupt our hearts. They would mess us up even more. And uh, so a Christian who's learning contentment in Christ's school can undergo losses of possessions or good fortune, who has a sober self-understanding to say, that's probably for the better. Uh, To be honest, I probably wasn't going to be able to handle that in a healthy way, or I wasn't handling it in a healthy way. Uh, Now that's that's a very humbling place to land, isn't it? Uh, He he uses the illustration of a, a younger sister who has an older sister who has a long coat that fits her well, but the little sister sees the coat and she might be tempted to envy, like, my coat's smaller, yours is longer. You know, I want a big coat like my big sister. But if she wore it, she would be like tripping on the tails and falling and injuring herself. So it's like, that's fine. That's a good coat for your sister, but it's not a good fit for you. And so how foolish is it to just be envying your older sibling's big clothes because you don't have the same big clothes? Well, they're not, they're not good for you. Um, be content for whatever God knows is fitted for you. And part of this, again, requires just being aware of our makeup, being aware of our strengths and weaknesses. And we can grow in these things. It's not like this fatalistic, like, I'll never be able to handle money, so I'm going to always be poor. But um, it's good to be sober about that. Like, well, you know, some people are very generous, like financially, like some people are very, very generous, and God entrusts them more wealth. And we can say, praise God. Um, I, I would struggle with generosity and I would just serve myself. So maybe it's for the better. God's not enriching me the way that I, I might want. Any reflections or questions or thoughts about these, these points? Self-knowledge. It's helpful. Yeah. Um, let's look at seventh. Learning contentment requires understanding the burden of a prosperous condition. This kind of relates to the previous point, but some... Some kinds of prosperity aren't good for us. And you might, we struggle. Hey, what do you mean not good for me? How is prosperity a burden? What are some answers? Uh, and they're in your handout, so you may have already seen them. But pretend you haven't seen them. What, <laughs> what are the, you can sound smart by uh, pretending you didn't see No. Um, what are some ways that prosperity can burden us? What it's like to be prosperous, but I have a friend who is very prosperous. Uh huh. He has a lot of things, and he's not a Christian. Yeah. Um, he's always fearing he's going to lose. Yes. Yes. And he's um, anxious all of the time. Yeah. And his mind is so scrambled because he has his hand in so many different business things. Mm-hmm. He's unsettled constantly. Yeah. That's very good. That anticipates our uh, bro's first one. Yeah. Yeah. John. Uh, I was thinking of the example. Uh, the, uh, Jesus is giving the example that. The guy with all the grain who's like, oh, let me build another storehouse for all yeah. the grain because I'm so prosperous. But he didn't know he was going to be die the next day. Yeah. Yeah, which... lost in our yeah. stuff and lose it. Right. So it, so it can... Um, yeah, that, so it can distract us. So Sherry's saying it can create all these problems that are constantly needing solving. It can realize stress and anxiety, and then John says, it can distract us from what really matters. Right? We're busy trying to store our things, and then we don't think about the, our eternal soul. Yeah, Chinwe? It may even just uh, affect your relationships in terms mm-hmm. of other people. Um, maybe you know, suddenly you have a lot of friends, right? Like Proverbs talks about, you know, rich men have a lack of friends, but some of those friends may not be uh, genuine friends, or yeah. maybe just, um, I don't know, other people will probably just accuse you of being all these different things. Yeah. When they know you have more resources. Right, right. And and some of our answers are, and I keep I use the word prosperity, a lot of these answers kind of relate to material wealth. A lot of this could be extended to other things. But yeah, so it can create relational tensions. I I I, I sometimes think about like if you were to win the lottery, what a nightmare it would be in terms of like people's expectations of how you're gonna use that money to help them. And it's like, how could it not just cause all this wreckage relationally? Um, to suddenly be have all this wealth dropped in your lap. Um, so yeah, Burroughs gives a few answers. There's a burden of trouble. This is a point Sherry made, and I'll summarize it. He doesn't use these words, but mo money, mo problems, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that doesn't date back to the 17th century, believe it or not. But uh, the, the concept certainly he, he recognizes, which is the more prosperity we have, the more vulnerability to trouble. And again, it's not just money. Uh, like, of course, yeah, property. There's risk of loss with property. Um, 
we bought a house about a year ago. We have these beautiful trees that we love, and we, we love the shade and all this. Last night, <laughs> I was like, these trees might, might be an issue. We lost some limbs, but we're okay. But I was like, I don't know if I like these trees so much right now. Uh, they're upwind of our house. Um, but, uh, you know, like children. Children are a great blessing from the Lord, but more children can cause more heartache, too. Um, more responsibilities. We might, we might uh, envy those with greater responsibility and authority on this, but you know what they have? They have problems. They've got problems to solve. Um, and so God can see fit to entrust any of these things to us, and we should see them as wonderful blessings, but they can also bring all sorts of trouble. So let's be sober-minded about what we're being spared when we don't have these things. There's also the burden of danger, which I think this John's example was one of these dangers, but... Prosperity brings temptations. Uh, there could be a temptation to be distracted from things that matter, eternal things. Um, look at Job, this crazy prosperous guy. And there's basically, he's got this big target on his back that Satan is like, ah, oh, I can go after this guy, you know, with all, and, and look at all the opportunities for temptation Satan has in his life by taking away all this property and all these kids and all, and uh, it all like creates this whirlwind of temptation to deny God and to curse God. Thankfully, he does not do that. But uh, there's a danger. There can be an increased temptation. Um, Burroughs says this about people, like people in government authority or church ministers. Though you think they have a fine life, they lie awake when you are asleep. (laughs) It can be very easy to idealize the the lives of people with power and responsibility and all this. And it's like, just get, you know, heavy lies the crown, you know, on, on the, however that saying goes. Um, then number three is a burden of duty. Uh, Luke twelve forty eight. Jesus says, Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is this principle of stewardship in the kingdom of God, that those to whom a little is given, there will be less, uh, account, uh, there'll be less uh, asked for, and, and those to whom more is given, there will be more expected. And uh, this goes for everything. Possessions, health, um, again, authority, uh, there's a duty to use. And so, I mean, these are all kind of interrelated, right? But that's part of the trouble is that I have all these responsibilities that can create stresses. And uh, we don't want to create you know, this picture of God as this slave driver task. He's gracious. He, he's forgiving and understanding in Christ. Uh, we have fullness of his mercy and no condemnation. So not to be like, oh, you know, God's his taskmaster that he gives you some money and he's like, you better, you know, use it for the best purposes. But there is, very truly, there is a judgment, there is a reckoning for our, our stewardship of his, of his gifts and, and what he entrusts to us. And finally, it's a very similar, but the burden of account that we'll have to not only have a higher duty, but we'll have a heightened accountability for how we use the things we have. So the whole point of this is don't idealize those who have a lot. There are blessings to that, and then there are challenges to that. There are some things that may be enviable about it, and there are some things that are very not enviable. So if we understand this, we can be a lot more happy with, well, this is the lot God's given me, and there's some things to lament and struggle with, but there's some things to be glad I don't have to deal with. So praise God for that. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, Jason. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs 30, um, 8 and 9. And specifically, you know, the, the writer says, you know, two things I ask of you, but ones that are relevant are, Give me neither poverty nor mm-hmm. riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and naive and say, Who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane, profane the name of my God. So it's not just so much like a... Um, it's like it's, it's almost aiming at the middle ground. Yeah. You want to avoid the two extremes. Um, there's a, there's an, an element in which riches, if you, if you get them, if you, if you use them, God wants you to do great, fine. But it's not aspirational. It's it's something where it's like, I'm yeah, like, yeah. So that's very true. There are spiritual dangers on both sides, and I think yeah, the the that that's a great text. Proverbs thirty verses eight and nine. They give me neither poverty nor riches. There are. It's like you're you're uh, riding the donkey, right? You can fall off one side or the other into the dangers of riches and the dangers of poverty. They both have their spiritual. And some of us are walking on in one of those paths, and neither of those, of course, Proverbs not saying that they're inevitable that we fall into these sins, but we should see these things as heightened risks. Just going, there are heightened risks of one lot in life, and there are heightened risks of the other. Um, very good. That's helpful. Um, eighth, 
Learning contentment requires learning what a great evil it is to be given the desires of our hearts. It's a very dangerous thing to be given over completely to our desires. Would someone read Psalm 81, verses 11 to 12? All right, thanks, Megan. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. So you see how this is functioning. To give them over to their stubborn hearts is a judgment. It's his response to their refusal to submit to him, their hard-heartedness. He goes, fine. And this ha- and um, you see this in the wilderness wanderings when they complain and they go, we want, we want quail. He's like, I'll give you quail. <laughs> so it's coming out your ears. And he does. It's, it's, it is in the Bible. There is hardly a more dreadful judgment than to be given over completely to our desires. Salvation is more than this, but it's not less than being given a new set of desires, right? That's the new covenant promise of the law written on our hearts. What we need isn't just what we want. It's renewed desires, among other things. Of course, we need to be reconciled to God and these things, but we need new desires. To be given over to our desires is judgment. That's judgment. So, when our sorrow comes from not having our desires met, this should help at least help put a gap between this is like Matt's point about uh, he withholds no good thing, right? From those who fear him. There's a gap between what I want and what God knows is best for me. And if I am tempted to doubt that, just consider God judges people by giving them exactly what they want but, and not renewing their desires, not changing their desires. Um, perhaps God is saving me from the horrible effects of giving me what I want. Um, so that's, that's a sobering, helpful point. Uh, any thoughts or questions? That's a brief one uh, here, but any reflections or clarification? Well, ninth, we're going to deal with, this is the last one, it's a little longer, that uh, requires the right knowledge of God's providence. So this is the doctrine of how God upholds, provides, and controls all things. Now, this doctrine has underlain a lot of what we've seen through this series, right? This whole thing is kind of rests on a foundation of God's providence. God controls everything. Even evil. He doesn't do evil, but he... Um, is the one who ordains evil, and he's the one who um, who declared the end from the beginning. Um, and so here's where we take providence head on, and there's four aspects of providence that can help us learn contentment. First is the universality, meaning it covers everything. Would someone read uh, Matthew 10, verses 29 to 30? Yeah, Matt Boyd. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from you from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Thank you. So God cares about all the details. His providence extends to the hairs on your head. Every time one falls out in the shower or wherever it falls out, God knows. He goes, hmm, there it goes, and He controlled it. And He knows about the little birds, you know, in the field that maybe no human being will ever lay their eyes on. He knows when they die and when they're born and these things. Not just that he knows, that he controls it. He cares about all the details. Uh, So that's important to recognize when we're wrestling with contentment over circumstances. The second one is the efficacy, which is another way of saying the power of God's providence. That what God has chosen, uh, we have Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has an eternal counsel that has determined all that would take place from beforehand. And uh, there is nothing that's going to derail that. Now, that's never meant in the Bible to lead us to be fatalistic and passive and, oh, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. We're told to, to take certain actions and avoid certain actions, take responsibility, because that's often the means God uses for what he brings about. But still, the fact is, God's providence will happen. And so, again, uh, regarding our own contentment, regarding how we face trials and afflictions and losses... There's this sense of, Burroughs says, uh, would you want to alter the course of God's providence just because you don't like how it affects you? There can be a kind of self-centeredness of how we view the universe and going like, I wish this would change. (laughs) And uh, going, well, God planned it from eternity past. It gives you a little bit more perspective on all the even, even little, often it's little irritating things that can really set us off, right? And it's like, God planned it from eternity past. And there there is nothing that is going to change that plan. Um, the third, and this is where I think it really comes home, amid all the variety of providence, it all works together in an orderly way. So we heard from Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. 
And then the prior verse, Ephesians 1.10, he says that this is a plan, the unified plan to bring all things together in Christ. So what's crazy is you look out in the world and there's all these infinite complexity of interrelated events and objects. But what God is ordaining in the orchestration of all these things is they all move toward a unified plan. And so Burroughs uses the imagery of clockwork, which is very complex. There's all these wheels and stuff I don't understand. But what's it doing? It's all moving toward this one thing of this dial keeping time. And God's providence is doing that too. And so God in his, he says, God in his providence causes a thousand, thousand things to depend one upon another. And we tend to look at one isolated piece that we don't like how it's working. And we go, that's not good. But what is God seeing the whole time? He's seeing the whole thing. He's seeing all the details, but he's also seeing the whole at every, at every moment. Uh, he, the whole is immediately before his, his knowledge. And uh, so when we don't like one thing going on in our corner of the world, have we considered all the thousands of other things he's doing, even in that event? I'm not saying, oh, he's somewhere else, he's doing something good. In the thing that you don't like, he's doing all these other things you don't know. And it's going to create all these other effects, and it's going to, not only in your own life, but in other people's life. So there, there can be something kind of self-centered fundamentally about raging against some providence we don't like because we really aren't appreciating, certainly don't know, what are all the other people's lives this is affecting? What are all the plans God has, eternal plans, that this is, is impacting? Um, this is something that time travel stories like to explore. If you ever, you know, movies or books or whatever that deal with time travel that, you know, this always happens, right? People go back in time and they pull one historical thread and then it's like, what's going to be the outcome? But, you know, like Back to the Future, he starts messing with like how his parents meet each other and then hit the photo of him starts, he starts like fading from the photo of him because like he's starting to work himself out of existence. Um, so it's that idea of like, you just don't know how one event is going to interconnect with others. And, uh, you know, this time travel stuff isn't doing it theistically, right? It's just like this sort of fatalism. But we know God, uh, and thankfully, because of God's providence, we are not going to have time travel. Very grateful for that. But it just is a, a good illustration of God has all these intricate parts connected. So it gives us a broader perspective of our own peace. And finally, the, the last aspect of providence is the knowledge of God's usual way of dealing with his people. And uh, the usual way of, and again, more, more sub-points here, the usual way of dealing with his people First is, usually his people are afflicted. It is normal in God's providence for his people to undergo afflictions. 1 Peter 4.12, in persecution, Peter says, Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, Peter could be saying, Y'all, church, it is the usual way of God in his providential dealings with his people to ordain trouble, affliction. Uh, the second matter of how he deals with his people is usually when God intends the greatest mercy to any of his people. So when he intends great mercies, he's, he brings us into the lowest condition. Often his great mercies come in relief of the lowest conditions. Think of Joseph. Joseph is exalted to second in Egypt from what state? I mean, from what like condition? The lowest. He's not only a slave, but he's a slave condemned of... of uh, uh, crime, a, a horrific crime, and he's put in prison, and he's forgotten in prison. Like he's in the lowest tier you can imagine, and then he's exalted to the highest tier, which typifies another David, who similarly is on the run, falsely, uh, falsely accused and persecuted by King Saul, and he is exalted pretty quickly from that to king of Israel, which also typifies, and they all lead toward the greatest, which is Christ, right? Christ, who is raised up from the dead and exalted over all things from a state of what? Humility, uh, not only to become a man, to become a servant, but all the way to the point of death on a cross. So it is God's usual way. Hebrews 2.10 about Christ. It is fitting that he for, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. God usually... Uh, gives the greatest mercies out of the lowest conditions. Uh, Third, usually he works by contraries and turns the greatest evil into the greatest good. Back to Joseph. Joseph's example in Genesis. Do do we see, um, how does this work in Joseph's life? That God used evil to bring about the greatest good. 
Yeah, Maggie. Um, he was. He took the Joseph's brother's hatred of him mm-hmm. and used that to put him in a position where he can later save. Yeah. His, Yeah, so it wasn't just he was low and he was brought up, but the the broader story is their sin put him in that position and he was exalted to to the place where he could save them. So God, and and right there in Genesis 50 verse 20, you you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He meant what you did to me for good, for a good purpose. And there's others. I have Habakkuk 3.14, which is kind of poetic description of the enemy who, whose warriors shoot arrows, you, he says, you pierced with his own arrows, that's the enemy, which is, is, is symbolizing Satan, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. God loves to use the weapons of the enemy in his own destruction. The cross is the premier example of this. So, Burroughs says, it is the way of God to bring all good out of evil, not only to overcome the evil, but to make the evil work toward the good. And God shows the glory of his power, his, his providence, his wisdom in turning evil into its own destruction. So that means sometimes we're going to walk through evil things on the way toward God using that even for the greatest good in our lives. So, so um, there we have it. We have uh, Christ has us all, his disciples in the school of contentment. It's a lifelong course of study, but we can mature to the point where with Paul we can say, I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. As we've seen, this lesson consists of many sub-lessons that we have to learn about self-denial. We have to learn about our our role as sojourners in the world, the the vanity of creaturely goods, and and God's providence, etc. But may we all find joy in God's dealings with us as he matures us into the likeness of Christ. Um, If you have any questions or interaction you want with me afterward, I'll be around so we can interact and Certainly, um, community groups will be a good time to keep on discussing these things. But let me close in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for your good ways with us in Christ. We pray that you give us eyes to see and mature us in this, in this um, virtue of contentment so that we can worship you with our whole lives, no matter what you ordain for us. In Jesus' name, amen.